Our journey of knowledge has taken many shapes and forms. School was just one of those forms. Throughout school, we've been taught these abstract concepts about what life is and how it works, but we were always bound to one curriculum. Now, just because we've graduated doesn't mean the journey is over. I'm Umar. And I'm Sabrine. And welcome to After, after school. school. Get up! After school! After school! Well, class, time for a book quiz! Okay, Mr. F.A. Now, where you sit in the cafeteria is crucial. All right, listen up, y'all. I'm y'all substitute teacher, Mr. Garvey. We will get to know each other in detention. What is college? Mr. Smith, you want to go to Princeton. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Thank you all very much. This podcast is brought to you by Postgrad Productions. Today, we're going to be delving into the topic of intergenerational trauma. So, when it comes to intergenerational trauma, what we're going to talk about, Sabrine, why are we talking about this? What is what is the reasoning behind it? So, um, after doing some research into the topic, what we found out is that Basically, there have been an increasing amount of conflicts around the globe. Mm -hmm. And then while those uh, conflicts have been increasing, deaths um, have just been going down. There haven't been as many deaths through Mm -hmm. these conflicts. So really what's going on is that there are more survivors of these conflicts and traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. And these people are um, uh, taking this trauma that they've incurred through these conflicts and they are living with it through their lives Mm -hmm. that's really interesting because when you think of it when you think of the numbers casualties going down you would think it's a good thing but it's not necessarily i mean it's it's good that you know less people are dying but you know then you have another problem with with more people having faced all of these horrific things and this is having to live with them yeah and this is something that's not really being addressed um so these people are living with these traumas um and they're not really getting the help that they need and then what's going on is um they are like unintentionally transmitting that trauma to future generations and that is what this topic is all about so you could have like someone who's father or grandfather great-grandfather experienced something and then that person having adverse effects because that other person went through something exactly yeah they themselves so like the grandchildren Mm -hmm. of people who are survivors from Mm -hmm. things like that were traumatic Mm -hmm. they don't themselves they themselves don't have to experience the trauma but they will still get the adverse effects of that trauma Mm -hmm. and basically this podcast is to explain why that is and well, how that happens. I mean, I, I'm all for it. I'm all yours. It seems like you've done a lot of research and I'm, I'm going to be the part of the <laughs> I audience. Guess we'll I see. Feel. All right, let's go. <laughs> okay, so we wanted to get a firsthand account of experiencing intergenerational trauma to be able to understand this issue in context. I decided I would reach out to the people closest to me to get some perspective. So here we are. This is a story about my family. My family is originally from Nibia, a country in North Africa. In the 80s, there was growing tension between the U.S. and the Gaddafi regime. In 1986, the Reagan administration bombed Libya in retaliation for a bombing they believe Gaddafi orchestrated in West Berlin. The bomb hit my grandma's home in Libya, murdering her mother, father, brother, uncle, and niece, all in one blow. When it happened, my mom and her parents were living in Oklahoma, far removed from the situation physically. What you're about to hear is a story from a few voices. You'll hear it from Ronald Reagan, from ABC Newscasters, and from the point of view of my mom. My fellow Americans, 
At 7 o'clock this evening, Eastern Time, air and naval forces of the United States launched a series of strikes against the headquarters, terrorist facilities, and military assets that support Muammar Gaddafi's subversive activities. The attacks were concentrated and carefully targeted to minimize casualties among the Libyan people with whom we have no quarrel. From initial reports, our forces have succeeded in their mission. Last night's raid took a heavy toll here. Libyan officials admit the hits on Gaddafi's headquarters and some military installations. But the Ministry of Information took us this morning to see for ourselves what damage had been done to one residential neighborhood. The U.S. may have been trying to hit an intelligence bureau in the neighborhood. If the American warplanes were aiming to hit the Central Security Force headquarters nearby, they missed badly. Instead, they killed innocent civilians and destroyed civilian homes. In the beginning, I remember walking in and, like, she's watching the news and it says like you know they bombed libya and stuff like that and i didn't know i mean i didn't know if anything had happened but she was already crying at that point and she didn't know anything had happened to our family she's like i just feel bad for wh whoever it happened to right she's like um um but then like you know they just they kept calling libya and fight, trying to figure out what's happening and all that stuff and I remember I was watching the news and they literally showed the embassy. Like, so they were talking about the French embassy. The French embassy is next door to my grandparents' house because I used to live there a lot. Um, so they're like, I, there's big news that, that they might have bombed the embassy, da, da, da. But then they showed like the embassy was fine and you could see that their house was gone. And I saw that and my dad was like, I, remember, I just like froze because I, could see the entire thing on TV. The French embassy was clearly hit in the raid, but worst hit of all were the homes of ordinary Libyans. One bomb, which left a 30-foot crater in the middle of the street, destroyed houses on both sides. Families were rendered homeless. Journalists have so far seen 14 dead civilians with many more wounded. My mom and my mom and dad were on the phone, and my dad's like, what, what, what are they saying? And I just, I didn't know what to tell them at that point, you know? Anyway, and we kept seeing everything almost on TV. On TV. I mean, she saw their funeral on TV. She saw the, and that was the first time she cried. I remember that. Like she, they had them in boxes and they had their names on them, and they showed that on TV. And that was the first time she's like, you know, she's realizing that they're actually gone. I remember times even after when she would like wake up, she'd wake up, she had a dream. She's like, they're alive, they're okay. She would come in my room and say that. And that was like, like she just, because she wasn't there, it's really hard for her. I mean, even though she was watching it on TV, like I said, it was just hard. Um, yeah, so. Uh, sorry. Oh, man. Anyway. Yeah, so, like I said, like, my dad, like, collapsed when he heard it from his, I don't, I don't remember if it was his, his sister or his brother, one of them told him what happened, and 
they, he just like collapsed and he was just crying and stuff like that. She just, and she like literally had, at the time we just had those phones that are at home where you have to pick up the other phone to hear what's going on in the conversation. And you were both listening on the other line and that's when like they said for sure that they were gone. Um, and she just like, she, just, she was stone faced, like just nothing. Trauma yeah, trauma and shock. Yeah. And I think for her, she like totally turned numb immediately. And I mean, she went on with life, but just like all emotions got shut. I mean, she would say that. I think she's told us that. Like at times she'll say like, my tears have dried up. Like I can't, I can't cry anymore. Yeah. And I think... Whenever you go through a trauma like that, it's your body just shuts Shut. down and doesn't allow you to feel anything, whether it's happiness or sadness. Hearing it from my mom's voice, it hits you in a different way, you know? Because, like, yeah, it's heavier, but uh, the way that I see both of my grandmas is just, it's all love. Like, I just feel like there's nothing wrong that they can do, you know? Mothers and grandmothers, they're put through so much. And they're like the backs of everyone's families, you know? And so just to like have watched my grandma had to, like she she went through something so traumatic where she lost so many members of her family all in one, at one time. And what she lost wasn't just, it wasn't like something moment, momentary. She lost like future memories. She lost comfort. She lost protection. She lost like advice. You know, she has to like walk through the world without all these people in her life anymore, you know? And so like that's like that pains me to watch my family like live through these events and like have to carry it with them. But you know, like my love for her and our family and 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 everyone who kind of experienced this, it pushed me to want to understand like what does trauma do to a, a person on an individual level and then on a family level and then even on an intergenerational level. So that's why we're here and we're trying to like like decompact all this um, and just kind of like learn what's going on. So this is only a part of the story. Um, and before we move on with it, we just need to define a couple things. Yeah, starting with what is trauma? Hi, Tamara. This is Sabrine. Oh, hi, Sabrine. This is Tamara Hill, and she is a... Licensed child and adolescent therapist, but I also work with adults um, who are dealing with life transitions and trauma, grief, loss. Tamara is going to help us define what trauma is. I always explain trauma as um, some kind of psychologically and emotionally destabilizing event that... You had absolutely no coping skills to deal with. So the event and the effects of the event outweighed your ability to cope. So that's how I like to define trauma. My name is Keith Renshaw. I'm uh, an associate professor and chair of psychology at George Mason. Keith is going to dive deeper and talk to us about what trauma does to a person. Most studies show that the typical response to a traumatic event is something that looks like uh, what would be a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD, to have things like um, nightmares about it, to have uh, thoughts about it even when you're not trying to think about it. We call those intrusive thoughts. Um, to have uh, maybe even 
something to the level of what people refer to as a flashback memory, where it almost feels like it's happening again, um, to have reactivity to anything that reminds you of the trauma. Um, there's also a tendency to want to avoid thinking about the trauma or talking about the trauma. Um, there can be uh, uh, what we refer to as um, hyperarousal, where somebody's jumpy, on edge, um, easily startled. Um, they might be irritable. They might have difficulty concentrating and sleeping. All of that is actually part of the typical response to trauma. Beyond that, though, some of the more, more some of the studies of people who have experienced trauma have found that one of the key predictors of developing PTSD long term are people who tend to avoid talking or thinking about the trauma and experience kind of a, a, that, that emotional numbing more after the trauma. So people who seem to be a little bit more distanced from the trauma, who try to be pushing it away actively, um, actually tend to be a little more likely to develop PTSD down the road. I think Keith brings up a really interesting point in that maintaining distance from the traumatic experience you have tends to make it worse for you down the line, mm -hmm. which is something that I didn't realize was possible for me. Like if, if something like that were to happen to me, my first reaction would be like, okay, like if you compartmentalize it and throw it away somewhere, then it, you know, you will never have to work with it. You'll never have to react to it. You'll be, you'll be fine. Mm. But that's not the case. I think that's a typical response. I think people normally think that um, not dealing with it is the easiest thing because mm -hmm. because usually they're in the state of trauma still yeah. and it's so painful to have to like relive it and talk about it. But yeah, what Keith is saying is that that causes long term PTSD. Yeah, the longer yeah. you talk, like you leave it out of conversations the longer you don't normalize it to yourself and talk about it the worse it's going to be you know and now that we have a have a grasp of what trauma is next we're going to learn about what intergenerational trauma is yeah and that comes from Rachel Goodman who is a professor here an associate professor in the counseling and development program at George Mason University so intergenerational trauma is generally talked about as trauma that's passed down um, from one generation to another. So oftentimes that means that the second generation may or may not have directly experienced a traumatic event. Okay, so based on Rachel's definition, I decided to speak to the youngest sibling in my mom's family, who was three and five years old when the most traumatic things happened to her parents. And so because she was those ages... I would say that she didn't directly experience a traumatic event and therefore is considered the second generation. This is my aunt. Susan. So um, there are a few traumas that my parents experienced uh, on my father's side. His brother went missing in 1983. Since then, we have no idea like what really happened. They say his plane crashed in the Mediterranean. We heard later that somebody saw him in a prison in Libya a year later after they said he uh, disappeared or died, but they couldn't produce a body. And that put a lot of pressure on my dad, and he, you know, he's the oldest, so he was also trying to help the family cope. He was trying to help with my grandmother, and it was very intense on him. He really started trying to dig in and find the truth and the reality of what happened. And because 
I mean, his poor family has no idea what's happened to him since 1983 and or how many years later. What Susan just explained happened to her family when she was three. And now she's going to explain what happened around her when she was five. So my mom's side, there's a little bit more intense of a trauma in that my mom lost a lot of her family um, in 1986 during the bombing. The U.S. bombed Libya after the discotheque bombing that happened in retaliation, supposedly. And a lot of her family were all wiped out in one fell swoop. And she was here in the U.S. Obviously, we were all here. And it was really traumatic. Um, And it took a real heavy toll on her because She was in a faraway land when that happened with her family, and the grieving process, I'm sure, is much more difficult when you're separated. They didn't have the same kind of tools that we have now with Skype, so phone call if you can get through. And and it affected her in a way, and I think that it, you know, caused her depression in having to go through that. And... I was five when that happened, so I don't remember the actual event, uh, although we do have an interview of it uh, through CNN was interviewing my family. And so I see myself as a little kid, and, and I was when we were watching it, I was looking at like how unaware I was. That at five, I don't think you are going to be very aware anyway. The other thing I would say is You know, I mentioned all of those um, behaviors and psychological impacts that a lot of times people have when they've been through a trauma. So oftentimes those, um, those are acted upon, right? So that means that my child then is experiencing me having outbursts of anger or um, withdrawing and not being able to give affection. So you know, it's interesting because, of course, you know, most parents you know, do the absolute best they can, right, for their children. Um, but a lot of times those are scars and wounds that haven't healed for them um, and that they sort of pass on um, unintentionally. The effect that it had in my relationship with my mom is that I was at such a young age and she was going through her own trauma. And so... She felt very distant. Um, You know, I don't have very many memories from that age of, um, I don't have very many memories of like playing with my mom or having these moments that kids have with their parents because she was dealing with her own trauma. And um, it formed her relationship with us in a way because she had to deal with that and she was also trying to raise four kids but but a lot of what I remember is the the things that she did for us like cooking and cleaning as opposed to like spending time and sitting and reading or whatever may be so yeah that relationship you know is something that when I see my relationship with my daughter, 
I miss those memories. Like, I wish I could have memories like that with my mom. <clears throat> so she, like, did everything she could. Right. To be the best mom she could without those, like, emotional connections with her kids. Like, she still was, like, like she I'm did her take care of right. you as best as I can. Yeah. But she couldn't be that, like, nurturer. She, like, took care of you physically as best as she could. But Correct. There wasn't, there was... There was something blocking her because she couldn't deal with her own emotions. Plus, like at that time, like depression was not something that people. No, and I don't. I don't think they had access to healthcare and and mental healthcare really, as we do now. Like I feel that in that time, it's like, okay, their generation's like, okay, you suffered a huge trauma, just deal with it and try your best to get over it. You know, I don't I don't think in the 80s there was this huge awareness that we have now. Like, well, no, there's something this is something huge that you should actually go take care of and go see a therapist and talk about it and release those feelings of grief and sadness and anger and everything. Um, so I think that just because of the era too that this happened in that there wasn't that awareness sometimes um the ways that people are coping actually become problematic so for instance um there's a term called uh, the conspiracy of silence where in a lot of families uh, if you've experienced a significant traumatic event you really don't want that to impact your child right and so you decide okay i'm never going to talk about that I'm, that's, we're not going to talk about that. That, never, that didn't happen. I'm going to pretend. But actually what that does is create like a, a mystery around this family secret. And then people don't understand why um, their mother always gets really upset at a particular time of year or withdraws sometimes or their father, right? So, um, so there are ways in which we think, right, that um, families, communities – might be passing it on um, when they're actually really trying not to. How easy or mm -hmm. how often did your parents discuss the events of that bombing or even like other events like like yeah. and stuff? So the events of everything that happened that was really traumatic, like the bombing and my uncle missing and, and those things, we actually did not discuss them very often until we got older. Like I would say after maybe like senior year in college in those days, that's when we started to talk about it more. I don't know the reasons why we never discussed it, whether it was just to keep us moving on to, you know, to just be in the present and not think about the past because you can't change it. Um, my parents are pretty, you know, um, they're both religious and they believe a lot in destiny and things that happen that you can't change and that, you know, her parents and family are in a better place. So that gives them comfort and solace. And actually they ended up doing Hajj after going to the pilgrimage after the bombing by a few months. And that was one of the places that my mom was able to grieve and really like just, you know, turn her face towards God and let it all out and she was able to 
process some of it, but again, without going through therapy and really sitting down and talking through it, um, I don't know how much that was able to help. I know it did help her, but it still affected her. I think because the way they dealt with it wasn't to discuss it and to talk about it, especially because we were young. So I think they didn't want to also cause us the uh, double the trauma of reliving it again or rehashing it out. I'm thinking as a parent now, that's how mm -hmm. I would look at it like if you gonna sit there and discuss these things but like with my kids they've had even discussions about these incidences with my kids and my kids are you know nine and twelve and so they're really open to talking about it now but I don't know if they would have been when we were that age or at least when I was that age because I think it was just too close it was too painful so the first dimension of trauma that Rachel just explained was the social dimension, which is how trauma affects the way parents interact with their children. When people can't resolve their own traumas, it blocks their ability to nurture their children and it impacts the way their kids view the world. Research demonstrates that unresolved trauma in caregivers is associated with mental health disorders in their children. Helping parents to recognize and face unresolved traumatic experiences becomes crucial not only for the parents, but for the future generations. In a qualitative study conducted on the children of Holocaust survivors, it was found that the children experienced their parents' traumas transmitted to them in subtle but real ways. For instance, many children of survivors explained having a terrifying view of the world because of what their parents went through. The kids of these parents feel the need to always be ready to react to imminent catastrophes and potential threats to their survival. They constantly feel on edge and need to be prepared for the worst. This is a parallel to the generations of other survivors of trauma. One community one can immediately think of that has the same thought process is the African-American community. Think about how often African-American families relate to their children a need to be proactively aware of their surroundings and interaction with others based on the fear of hate crimes and police brutality. Informing a certain form of conduct based in caution tailored to their identity group and the traumas that they experienced. The next question I asked my Aunt Susan was, what's something your parents tried to instill in you because of their traumatic experiences? Start relying on yourself because, you know, we may not be here for you to take, to, to rely on, so always be reliant upon yourself. And that really formed, you know, my idea of, myself and how to to you know live through this life and try and, and do the best I can and maybe part of it also formed into perfectionism too so that's something I struggle with in in wanting everything to be perfect and having really high expectations and and um, these things that are okay if they're not attained, but really within me, they don't feel okay. I mean, I can tell you something from my dad's, like, request of high expectations from us, in that those expectations that he put for us were very difficult to meet. And your self-worth becomes tied to that, right? If you can't meet those expectations, however high they may be, and for whatever good intention was there, 
you then start to look at yourself like you aren't good enough. And I think that was something else that trickled down within me and that when I found I couldn't attain things to a certain level or be, you know, the best mom ever and the best worker ever and like it starts to affect how I view myself and it becomes a skewed vision and I wasn't able to actually see that until I went to therapy. That was something I had a hard time dealing with until I realized where it stemmed from. And the reason I went to therapy was because I was having really high anxiety. And throughout therapy, I came to the understanding that it was really due to the perfectionism. The next dimension of trauma transmission Rachel will explain is the epigenetic transmission. Is that we know when you experience trauma, um, we're able to see some changes in your brain chemistry. And so part of what may be happening is that those changes um, could be transmitted um, epigenetically. So there's some emergent research that's looking at that to try to determine um, are these changes in our bodies actually then impacting the biology of the next generation. All right, so what is epigenetics? Well, it's the study of biological mechanisms that switch genes on and off. And understanding this process on an intergenerational scope is called epigenetic inheritance, which is the idea that environmental influences can affect the genes of our children and possibly even grandchildren. Our genes are modified by the environment all the time through chemical tags that attach themselves to our DNA, which switches genes on and off. Studies suggest that some tags somehow might be passed through generations, meaning our environment can have a direct impact on our children's health. This was first understood through the study of mice. So, there were a bunch of scientists at Emory University. They placed some mice in a controlled environment and sprayed the smell of cherry blossoms in their presence. And at the same time, they'd shock the mice. Every time, right? Yeah, for a while. Then, after enough times, the mice would just shudder at the smell even without the shock being present. Now here's where it gets really crazy. The children of these mice, despite never having even encountered the smell of cherry blossoms, had the same fearful response to that smell. So they shuddered when they came in contact with the smell of cherry blossom too. Big time. And believe it or not, so did some of their children's children. So I found a study that also shows this impact occurring in humans. In 2016, a genetic study of 32 Jewish men and women who had been victims of the Holocaust. They analyzed the genes of these survivors' children and compared the results with Jewish families who were living outside of Europe during the war. What they found was that there were visible gene changes in the children, which could only be attributed to the Holocaust exposure in the parents. They looked into one region of a gene associated with the regulation of stress hormones, which is known to be affected by trauma. They found epigenetic tags on the very same part of this gene in both the Holocaust survivors and their offspring, but the same correlation was not found in any of the other Jewish groups who hadn't experienced the Holocaust. What the researchers explained is that whether the gene in question is switched on or off could have a tremendous impact on how much stress hormone is made and how the children cope with that stress. These studies are just the beginning of understanding how trauma is transmitted to future generations. Now that we've learned what trauma is and how it can be socially and epigenetically transmitted over the generations, it's time to figure out solutions. We're going to hear if there are any known ways on how to stop the effects of trauma from cycling on to future generations. In the same way that I think about 
how a traumatic event can have intergenerational impacts, the ways in which people have survived and have been resilient in the face of these difficult events, those can also be passed down, right? So we can have intergenerational resilience. We can have um, stories of survival. We can have not only um, the stories about the things that we've been through as a people and how difficult those were, um, but also what we did to survive, how we coped, how we took care of each other. I feel like my parents are way more open to talking about it now and to kind of discussing the details because the pain of it, while it's still there, it's not in that intensity that it was. And I think they too want to hash it and to discuss it and, and to even discuss the details and um, because it does give them some solace that we're curious and we're interested and we want to know how they felt. So it kind of comforts them in, in that way. So what's being said here is also being seen in the literature. Not only can trauma be transmitted through generations, but so can resilience. Resilience, according to the American Psychological Association, is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, and tragedy. It means bouncing back from difficult experiences. Research that delves into the social transmission of trauma has shown that resilience is a reoccurring outcome among children of families with more open and affectionate communication styles, which frequently make use of humor as a symbolic resource to deal with their trauma. So what it's saying here is that families that use humor to deal with their stresses and with their traumas lowers the likelihood of that family passing on traumas to future generations. So I am not a fan of sort of a one-size-fits-all approach, right? Um... I think that it's important for healing of trauma to come from what's natural for a group of people. What are the ways in which traditionally folks in that community have healed, have taken care of one another, have helped one another? What has been therapeutic, right, in the broad sense um, for, for people in that community? And then as a clinician or as somebody working in collaboration with the community, how do I try to bring that to more people? A lot of times um, problems with substance abuse get talked about a lot or um, physical abuse get talked about a lot as um, a problem among communities. Um, but, but really to understand those, like, those um, symptoms, right, you have to understand what's underneath it. Right. So just providing substance abuse treatment is not likely to address substance abuse. Right. If I'm using a substance in order to cope with, you know, generations of emotional pain and trauma, fear, right, then providing me with some substance abuse treatment is unlikely to actually move the needle. Right. It's unlikely to actually impact that. So I think if we want I think if we want results, if we want to do a good job, if we want um, to provide programming, provide um, opportunities that are helpful to people, we have to do a much better job of understanding from their perspective what the problem is, right? What's really going on. And a lot of times, you know, I see this in my field, I think it's probably true at other levels in terms of thinking about government and policy. We see really well-meaning people um, doing things that don't really help. 
um, and that actually over time can be harmful because if you're providing a community with a solution, right, that isn't um, aligned with how they see the problem, they can become frustrated, they can become jaded, they can become resentful, right? That you're, you say you're helping me, but you're not helping me. You're not listening to me and what's wrong, um, what I think is, is wrong in my life. Our last question went out to physician and trauma specialist Vernique Mead. Why do you think this is an important cycle to understand? Oh, that's probably the whole crux of your thesis yeah. and studies, I would think, right? Yeah. I mean, if we as a society understand trauma, it affects everything we do. We would support families in a much broader way to help parents heal their trauma so that they don't reenact it with their kids. We would work with not separating kids at the border as we've been doing here in this country because that's setting up not just one person's life but an entire multi-generational pattern and how we work with negotiations instead of conflict as ways to resolve differences. It would just change our entire society and future generations and how we treat the planet. It would affect <laughs> everything. It would change everything. We just wanted to thank everyone who tuned in and to everyone that was involved in the making of this episode. Thank you to everyone who was willing to speak to us about this topic, and especially thank you to my family for being vulnerable and sharing their real stories. This topic is something that touches a lot of communities across the world. And we just hope that this episode brought some insights into how to address these cycles of intergenerational trauma.